you have a Bible with you, you can open with me to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament towards the end. And we are starting chapter 2 this morning, making progress. Hebrews chapter 2. Pay attention. (laughs) Pay attention. No doubt we've all heard those words. Maybe we've used those words, but we have no doubt heard those words from a parent or maybe a coach or a teacher. Pay attention. We use that phrase when we have something important or urgent we want to say. Pay attention. I think this past year when I was teaching our daughter to drive, I used some version of that many times. Pay attention, because my life is at stake here as we pull out into this traffic, right? Be alert. Pay attention. Focus. This is important. Well, interestingly, pay attention is the first exhortation or command of our author in this letter that we call the book of Hebrews. It's his first exhortation to us, first command. Let's, let's read it. Chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It's what he says. I'll put it on the screen, follow in your Bible. Let's listen. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. Stop there. Pay attention. That's his central exhortation. Pay attention. In fact, it's the first one, as I said, in the book of Hebrews. This letter that we're looking at is really a sermon. As I said, it's a sermon in letter form. And the author, we could call him a pastor, the author has ultimately a pastoral purpose for his readers. What we've entitled, Hold Fast to Christ. That's his great burden in this letter. Why he's right. I want you to hold fast to Christ. I want you to draw near. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Persevere in faith. Hold fast to your confession in Christ. That's his pastoral purpose. His readers seem to be in some kind of danger of turning away or of falling away. So this sermon letter is punctuated by exhortations to steadfastness, mingled with warnings if you don't. We'll see these throughout the letter. In fact, five of them throughout the letter. So this this letter 
we call Hebrews, this sermon letter, it's not just a great doctrinal thesis on the superiority of Jesus. Oh, it gives us that. But this rich doctrine on the superiority of Jesus serves his pastoral purpose to hold fast, to pay attention, to not give up. And in chapter 2 now, this is the first instance of him punctuating his letter with this kind of exhortation mingled with warning. For this reason, he says, pay attention. For this reason, do you see it at the beginning? Yours might say, therefore, something like that. For this reason or therefore, pay attention. For what reason? That's <laughs> what we should ask. For what reason? Well, really, everything he said in chapter 1 is leading him to this exhortation. For this reason, all that I've just said about the Son, about who he is and how God has spoken in him, for this reason... Pay attention. So let me just summarize. Remember what we saw in chapter 1. Go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1. How he opened his sermon letter. We talked about God speaking long ago. But in these last days he has spoken in his son. So simply for this reason. God, God has spoken finally and definitively in his son. Pay attention to what we've heard. That's the summary. God has spoken Finally, definitively, in his son, we've heard it, so pay attention to it. This is God's ultimate revelation of himself, of his saving purposes, so pay attention. We have heard what he has spoke in the son, and the writer of Hebrews, really, so much of his book, he's going to tell us what we've heard. What we've heard, what God has said in the Son. He's getting to that. But he didn't go just from verse 2 of chapter 1 right to chapter 2. He gave a lot in between where he told us who the Son is. So he layers, you might say, this exhortation with even more richness about who the Son is. So let me give a, another layer here. For what reason? Let me add this. He is the eternal Son who has become the exalted son, much better than angels. So pay attention to the superior revelation in him. Why must we pay attention? Well, yes, it's God's final definitive revelation. And this revelation is in the son. And who is the son? He's the eternal son who is now the exalted son, far superior to angels. And he brings this final, complete, superior revelation. For that reason, we must pay attention. We must pay attention to this final revelation in the Son because of who the Son is. That is, here's his argument. If the prior revelation of God, what he said in chapter 1, verse 1, when God spoke long ago to the fathers, what he's going to call in our text this morning, the word spoken through angels... If that prior revelation of God through the agency of angels was reliable, it was true, it was trustworthy, how much greater the climactic word in His Son. So pay more attention, He says. So it's for that reason. So this is where He, again, He's, he's giving this rich doctrine, but He's getting to His exhortation. This is His point. 
So on the basis of all that we saw in chapter 1, for this reason, now he gives the exhortation. So let's, let's just look at it. Let's step through it with him. These four verses, his first exhortation, he gives it in just these three steps, pretty simply. There's nothing really complicated here. I'll explain a few things, but we want to hear his admonition or his exhortation. So the first step, number one, is the exhortation itself. I've already mentioned it, but let's see it a little more closely. The exhortation. Here it is. We must pay greater attention to God's revelation in his son. We must pay greater attention to God's revelation in his son. That is an appropriate focus and response to this revelation in the son. Now, technically, that is grammatically, it's not a command, not an imperative, but a necessity. See, we must, we must pay attention to this revelation. We must pay close attention to what we have heard. It's a necessity. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. We must pay attention to what we have heard because, as we'll see in just a moment, the consequences of not paying attention are catastrophic. So, listen up. We must pay attention to what we have heard. Now, in the rest of his letter, that is in these other exhortations, he's going to flesh out in more detail what it means to pay attention. Here he's just giving the simple exhortation. And we all know what that means, as I said at the beginning. Someone says to you, pay attention. You know what that means. Focus. Give attention. Consider. Thoughtful consideration. And here, by pay attention, he'll mean, yes, focus. Give attention. And respond appropriately. In faith and obedience. That's to pay attention. Again, as he gives other exhortations, he's going to flesh this out. He'll say, hold fast. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. That's paying attention. It's the opposite in verse 3 of neglect. Pay attention or neglect. We all know what it means to neglect something. The opposite Pay attention. Give heed. Give attention. Thoughtful consideration and right response to what we have heard, to this revelation in the Son. Now notice what he says there. We must pay greater attention. Here's my say, closer attention. We must pay greater attention. Literally, it's just, just as adverb means much more. Pay much more attention. <laughs> Here, it's not necessarily comparing it, but it's stressing how much attention we need because of how great the content is. He's going to call it a great salvation. It must correspond, our attention must correspond to the unsurpassed greatness of God's revelation in the Son. It is a great salvation, so pay great attention. That's the idea. Pay close attention. Pay much attention. Just, just think of it. If, if when I say that or a teacher says that or a coach says, pay attention. The necessity or urgency of paying attention to something is, I think, directly proportional to the value or significance of what is being said. If you don't think it's very important, you're not going to pay much attention. Right? So it's harder when your algebra teacher says, pay attention, right? You're like, ah, maybe, right? But when you consider the weight 
of what's being said. Pay attention. How much greater attention? That's what he's saying. There's nothing, I think, nothing demands our attention more than this word. Nothing. So ask yourself, are you paying attention to what God has said in Jesus? What, what do you pay greatest attention to? There's more than ever in our society, there are so many things demanding what our attention. We've got noise coming at us. Voices coming at us, messages coming at us, just demanding our attention. You really need this. This is really important, right? Screaming at us, pay attention. What is it? What do you pay attention to? Mostly. How much time and attention do you give to paying attention to this word? Ask yourself. Pay attention. There is nothing more important than you can give your attention to and to this. It's one of the reasons we gather every Sunday. From all that we've been through. Is we need to give heed to what is ultimately true. And what is more valuable than anything else we've heard. And then he gives a negative purpose. Do you see it there? We must pay close attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. It's a negative purpose. So that, lest we drift away. So, note this. Not paying attention to this word results in drifting away. Ultimately, a rejection and denial of this word, the gospel. It's a, it's a purpose. It's a negative purpose. Pay close attention so you don't drift away. That is, in the Christian life, there's no, there's no neutral ground. Either you pay close attention or you drift. There's no, there's no standing still in the Christian life. We're not just floating on a, on a lake, are we? a river and it will suck us down through. We're, we're float. We may not even be aware of the drift. That's what the word literally means. We just float by. So either we pay attention or we drift away. Hmm. What do you have to do to drift? Nothing. Nothing. Right? You go to the lazy river thing. You just drift not hard. Just do nothing. Do nothing and you won't be neutral. You're drifting. And you're drifting toward the waterfall. The cliff of God's judgment. Hmm. To drift, there's no vigilance. There's no diligence. It's, it's just subtle. You get the idea. Drifting, it's not a sudden. It's just a drift. Oh, the danger of drifting by not paying close attention. Are you drifting this morning? So thankful you're here.
because I, I do think one of the antidotes to not drifting is gathering with the saints and being under God's word. But we can still gather and be drifting in our hearts. Right? Are you drifting? You know. You're just losing interest. Losing interest in this salvation. Losing interest in God's word. Sin, maybe it's just taking more of a root in you. You're not battling it. You're not fighting it anymore. You've kind of come to terms with it. Maybe not assembling. That's what he's going to say towards the end of this letter. Don't forsake assembling. The day's drawing near. You, you've got to assemble to encourage one another. To hold fast. So maybe it's that. Just an occasion of assembly. Are you drifting? It's subtle. The antidote, pay close attention, lest you drift. Give yourself to this great salvation. Give yourself to what God has said in Jesus, right? And, and just so simply, there's no substitute for his word. That's where he tells us what he's done in Jesus. That's where we read of it. So we, we need that desperately. Because as I said, it's dangerous to drift because when he says drift away from it, he, he's not simply thinking, well, you'll be a little less fruitful Christian. Or you won't be just quite as engaged. He means you will go over the cliff under the judgment of God. You will find yourself rejecting Denying this good news. So he means. We'll see it all through his letter here of this warning. So it's danger. So that what leads him now to number two, second step, the warning. You can see how it just flows. He just said, lest you drift. And so now he's going to give what the danger of drifting is. Number two, the warning. Verse two, four. Now he's going to give another reason to pay attention. He's already said, for this reason, all of chapter 1, pay attention. But here's another reason to pay attention. For if the word spoken through angels was reliable, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he puts his warning in a conditional statement. And if then statement. We use those, the Bible uses them all the time. If, then. We call this conditional statement. If this is true, then this is true. And he's going to move from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, and it's the lesser thing, how much more this is true? So that's how he's giving us this warning in this kind of if, then, greater, lesser to greater. How much more? If, if you, if, if this is true of this former revelation of God, how much more so of his final word in the sun? So let's just look at it that way. The if and then the then statement, because that's how he does it. Here's the if part. If the law spoken through angels was valid, or you could say true or reliable, trustworthy, and resulted in punishment for disobedience, then, we'll save the then, just, just consider the if part of that statement. If the law, the word spoken through angels, was, was valid, it was true, it was God's word, it was binding, and it resulted in punishment for disobedience. So let's just think about that part of it. 
he says there, he doesn't use the word law. He calls it the word spoken through angels. Let's see that. The word spoken through angels. He's talking about God's revelation on Mount Sinai. If you remember that event, it was a terrifying event. People were terrified. Moses was terrified. And we're told in Deuteronomy 33 that that great revelatory event of God was accompanied by thousands of angels. This awesome revelation, this terrifying revelation. It was truly awesome, filled with awe and trembling. Accompanied by thousands of angels. And the Bible understands all through the New Testament that the angels were involved in mediating this revelation, this law. So that's what he's talking about. He doesn't call it law here. He's just getting after words spoken through angels. All through this first section, he is concerned with God's word spoken and if we are listening. That's why he phrases it that way. It's a spoken word. Listen, did they listen then? So that's what he's referring to. The, the word spoken through angels. So it's certainly Mount Sinai, but really it encapsulates all of the pre-sun revelation. Everything up until the coming of Jesus. There was this awesomeness of this angel-mediated revelation. Again, we saw that. The highest of heavenly beings were involved in this revelation. And, and that the way he phrases it there is it underscores... The seriousness of disobedience. So he says, he adds to that if statement, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. That's the nature of the law. It's reliable. It's true. God's word is real, serious. And every, every, disobedience, every transgression received punishment, judgment. You can, you can see that. Say, just read the, the entire Old Testament. We've been studying the Old Testament in between our New Testament studies. And, and you'll see the whole history as God's promised judgments coming true for the people for their disobedience. That's, that's just the whole history of Israel. That's what we're supposed to learn from. When you see this, their idolatry, when you see them just not listening to God's word, doing their own thing, just transgressing his clear word, and you see God coming in judgment over and over, removing the people, judging the people, you know his word is reliable. It's true. And we're supposed to learn from that. That's the nature of the law. Now, if this writer of Hebrews was Paul... And it's not Paul. And here's one of the reasons you know it's not Paul. Because Paul's point would be to say, that's what the law does. It enslaves you. That's what the law does. It just puts you under judgment. But here's the gospel that frees you. That would be Paul's state. But that's not the writer of Hebrews' state. That's true, by the way. That's the book of Romans. But he has a different emphasis. He's saying, if that was true then, with that word, what do you think is going to happen if you ignore this word in the sun? You feel that? He's moving from lesser to greater. So here's the then statement. 
then how much more certain, or you could say severe, is divine judgment for neglecting God's final saving word in His Son? If that's true of the law mediated through angels, how much more, how much more certain is divine judgment for neglecting God's final saving word in His Son? Isn't that interesting? That line of reasoning. So, so many people have a kind of a popular notion that the God of the Old Testament, well, he's that God that is kind of mean, right? judges and full of wrath. But, but when we come to the New Testament, we have a kinder, gentler God, right? We have Jesus, full of mercy. He is full of mercy. And so we typically think, well, there's no, there's no judgment here. Do you hear what he's saying? It actually ratches it up when you get to the new covenant. Because if you ignore this final word, there is no escape, is there? So hear that. Now, he doesn't use a traditional then statement. He actually uses something more powerful, a rhetorical question. You see it there in verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? We shall not. If this was true under the old administration, the word given through the agency of angels, how shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? We, we shall not escape. Now, it's implied what he means by escape is escape the judgment of God. But he doesn't spell it out here. He's going to spell it out. As we go through the letter, he just leaves it to our imagination. What won't we escape if we ignore this word of salvation? It is sobering. Now, it becomes clear, more clear now, why in the first chapter he spent so much time comparing the sun to angels. Remember, we saw that. He spent so long, we looked at that even last week. Why did he compare the sun to angels? Because he's getting at this point. The sun is so much greater than angels. So the revelation that angels participated in, right? Yes, it was binding, but how much greater this final revelation in the sun and how much severer a judgment for neglecting it. That's why, why he spent so much time on angels. Yes, the sun is superior to angels, and the final revelation that he brings is superior in the sense that it's final and complete, and the consequences of ignoring this are immense. That's what he's getting at. Now, notice what he calls it there in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect, he could have just said, if we neglect what we've heard. If we neglect this revelation in the sun. That's what he means. Don't you love his title? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's trying to get to the magnitude of this salvation and why you must pay greater attention to it and why it would be catastrophic to neglect it. So great a salvation. Now, here's an interesting note. The writer of Hebrews never uses the word, the noun gospel. You know that? 
We love that word. We've been singing of that word. The Bible all through uses good news, the gospel. He will use the verbal form of it just twice in chapter 4. We'll get that, preaching this good news. But he never uses that word. He could have used it here if we neglect the gospel. But he means the same thing. But here, it's descriptive. It's a great salvation. So, so this word that's come in the Son is not merely another word requiring obedience like the law. But it's a provision that delivers from the judgment and brings us life and fellowship, relationship with God. It's a great salvation, he says. As I said, he's, he's going to give the content of that salvation, this word of salvation, throughout the rest of his letter. We're, we're going to see and see it from so many angles, the greatness of this salvation. It is a great salvation. It is great because it's in the Son. It's great because it's final and complete and completely removes your sin. It is great because it brings life. Relationship to God. It is great because it secures our future. It is great because it is all about Jesus and the Son. So, so we'll get to that. But what a description of it. It is a great salvation. It's greater than that Old Testament revelation. Not, not because the Old Testament was flawed. It was God's Word. We just saw it's reliable. It's binding. It's greater in the sense that it's it's complete. It's final. It's the fulfillment. The old was partial and provisional. What's come in Christ is final. But here's the warning. Do you hear it? How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? Again, neglect is the opposite of paying attention. It's the drifting. To neglect, we all know what that means, right? You, you know what it means to neglect something. You just pay no attention. You, you treat it as inconsequential, irrelevant, unimportant. You don't value it. You just neglect it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Not giving serious attention to and responding to this word, in faith and submission. That's the warning. How many people this morning are completely neglecting this salvation, this revelation of God in His Son? I, I just I think of that every morning as I drive over here to church, and there's people out. Just enjoying the beauty of this place. And I, I, again, I don't know their hearts and where they're at, but, but not assembling, not giving attention to the greatest thing in the world. Just oblivious. Oblivious. And, and that, we shouldn't have a kind of a smug self-righteousness when we think that. What a brokenness. You want to say, pay attention, pay attention. Do you know what God has done in Christ? Have you heard, right? It just should compel us to, 
to speak this word to those that don't know, that are oblivious. And people are neglecting it either because they're just oblivious to it or because they have deemed it isn't true. It isn't valuable. It isn't true. So brings him to the third step here in his opening exhortation. Number three, the validation. The validation. Now at the end of rest of verse 3 and verse 4 is the validation. That is, after he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now he's just going to modify that idea of salvation in the rest of this paragraph. He's going to take up, all of this is about that salvation, and he's giving the validation for it. Do you see it? How shall we escape if, escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which was, now he's just talking about this salvation. So we could say, this salvation had its beginning by being spoken through the Lord, and it was validated, confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them by both signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. He's concerned about the, the right validation of this great salvation. How do you know it's true? How do you know this is a reliable word? Not just fiction. Not just fanciful tales and fantasy. How do you know? So he's concerned about that. Just as he said about the law, the word spoken through angels was reliable. It was valid. Can you see how it just came to pass all through the history of Israel? So he's saying, so this, this word in the Son, this salvation is reliable. It's validated. So his point here in giving this is that there has been enough validations of this truth, of this great salvation for you to believe it and to embrace it and love it and not neglect it. Now, here, here's the validation. He just gives it in these three stages. Do you see him? Here's the first stage. This salvation word began by being spoken through the Lord Jesus. That's how he says it. It's kind of hard to translate. He just, he just says... It was the salvation having its beginning by being spoken through the Lord. So this, this fulfillment of all that went before, this promise in the Son, begins with Jesus coming, His incarnation and His ministry. It was spoken through the Lord. God is still speaking. God is ultimately the one speaking. It's like we saw back in chapter 1. God spoke. We spoke in His Son, so that's why it says, through the Lord Jesus. Through the Lord here. The Lord is the Lord Jesus. So God is ultimately one speaking through Jesus. He spoke through angels, told in verse 2. Well, He spoke through the Lord here. So this would include, certainly it would include Jesus' teaching and His life. But I think as you think of the writer of Hebrews, when he likes to use this idea of the spoken word, I think he's thinking of all of who Jesus is and what he has done. His incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And yes, his teaching. So where do you start when you validate this gospel, this salvation? Well, you start with Jesus. 
the historical truth of Jesus. I said that last Sunday. Whatever you think of Jesus, you, you can't deny the historical reality of the person Jesus. So you start there. And what he said, his teaching, what did he say? His death, and I would argue even his resurrection, validated. I think it's good to look into those things. If, you, if you're wrestling with, is this true? Do I believe this? I think, that, start with Jesus. Who was he? What did he say? What did he do? Is he risen? I put that before anybody, historically. So that's where he starts. It was, it was spoken. You, you know this word is reliable because it was first spoken by Jesus. And then second stage, it was validated for us by eyewitness followers who were taught by Jesus. You see him? It was first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed, or that's my word here, validated to us by those who heard. That is, they, they heard directly from Jesus. They were the eyewitnesses. He's referring to the apostles. We call them apostles. That's what Jesus called them. They were eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, who were taught directly by Jesus, who received this word of salvation by Christ himself. And these eyewitnesses, their testimony is essential. So, so really, that's the next step in your apologetic, as you're thinking, is this word true? Start with Jesus, what he said, and then what did his followers say about him? What was their Testimony, and is it credible? I think it's very credible. These men, almost all of them, would give their life for this testimony. They were not duped. They were not inclined to believe. They were convinced by the risen Jesus and would spend their life proclaiming and dying for that reality. So he says, it was validated for us by those who heard the apostles. That, that's how this word of salvation, that's how it came to our author and to his readers. Do you see how he says that? It was confirmed, validated for us by those who heard. That's, again, it's another reason, you know, this is not Paul writing. Paul would never say that. Paul received his gospel directly from Jesus. That's his credentials as an apostle. So this author is not claiming to be an apostle. But that's where they received it from, the apostolic witness. They have validated it for us so that we, we know it's true. And that's how it comes to us this morning. We have their word. We have their word now written. Right? The New Testament, by and large, is the writing of these eyewitnesses, either them directly or a close associate with them, so that we have their both their testimony and their understanding of all that Jesus said and did. That's what the New Testament is. We have it. Which leads to the third stage. Verse 4. God confirmed their message, the apostles' message, by granting signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we add, verse 4, it says, God also bearing witness with them. That is, God adds his testimony, confirms their message by his own testimony, 
with them, with the apostles. And how did he do that? Well, he granted these supernatural signs. Miracles, we call them. Signs and wonders. Signs that pointed to something and miraculous displays that no one could duplicate. God did this to vindicate the truthfulness of this word, this message. God did this to vindicate the credibility of the spokesmen, the apostles. That's why these signs are uniquely associated with these spokesmen. When people were doubting Paul's apostleship, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And he uses the same three words. Signs, wonders, miracles. The signs of a true apostle. They vindicate the one who spoke and they vindicate the message. God is adding his testimony. And this is what you read. You see it in Jesus, right? You see these signs and wonders. And then you see it in the book of Acts. You see it in the apostles. Where they went speaking this. God confirming it. Confirming it. Adding his testimony. This is true. Believe it. He's validating the truthfulness of this word. These are my spokesmen. Listen to them. What they speak is true. So there's the validation. The three stages. Again, the author's point is these testimonies, spoken first by Jesus, authenticated by those who heard Jesus, God granting his testimony by granting signs and wonders, these testimonies are more than sufficient validations of the truthfulness of this great salvation. So that any neglect on our part is not due to lack of evidence, but ultimately to our spiritual condition. The evidence is there. If you want to invest it, go for it. Nothing to hide. That's what he's saying. It's validated. There's no lack of that. This didn't just arise out of the fancy of someone's mind centuries later. It's all there. So to neglect it is not merely just an intellectual denial of evidence. It's a spiritual condition. Don't neglect. So I close. Return to his main exhortation and ask us again. Are you paying attention to this great salvation or are you neglecting it this morning? Are you paying attention? Are, are you giving serious attention? Do you, do you love it? Do you think about it? Do you meditate on it? Do you marvel at it? Do you, do you feel this continual gratitude for it? Do you commend it to others as so valuable? And do you weave it into really all your life? Are you paying attention? Attention, giving consideration to the greatness of this salvation or are you neglecting are you drifting this morning how easy to drift so easy to float along the current of this world it will float you along if you are drifting and you you feel it this word is pricking you. It's, it's convicting you. If you're drifting and you, you, you're feeling that and you're saying, I don't, 
I'm, I'm afraid I'm drifting. I don't want to drift. Listen, that, that's a good sign. That's a sign of life. That's a sign of spiritual life, that you take heed to these warnings. This is part of God's mercy to, to give us, throughout the book of Hebrews, these, these warnings, these sobering wake-ups. And those who know Christ, if we are starting to drift, we, we respond to those. We want to pay attention. Because this paying attention is not a difficult command, is it? Look what we're paying attention to. The greatest news in the world. How hard is it to pay attention to that? Right? It's not like paying attention to algebra. Now, some of you love that, but not like paying attention to English or something else. Just pay attention to this. How hard is that? But, it, but we drift. So if you're drifting in your desires, I feel it. I feel the drift. I've been negligent. I feel sin taking root. I, I just feel a disinterest. I'm, I'm just been very sporadic in my assembling with the saints. Oh, repent. God, God's shown you. Repent and, and, and then avail yourselves of the means of paying attention. Right? Paying attention. Yes, assembling with the saints. Don't forsake it. Giving attention to His Word. This is where you're going to hear His Word. Fellowship with other believers that are spurring you on. Give attention. Don't neglect those means. There is no escape if we neglect this salvation. So that's a sobering word to end on. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We shall not. On the day of judgment, and that day is approaching, there will be no escape. There will be no hiding place. There will be no place of safety from God's wrath, judgment. But today, there's a way of escape. <laughs> That's what he's announced in this salvation, in his son. There's a way of escape through the son. Faith in Christ alone as your savior and Lord. That's the way of escape and it's perfect. It's great. And he's provided it. My prayer is that you are resting in it this morning. And if you're not, cry out to him. Cry out to him for mercy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let me pray for us as we close our time. Amen. Father, we thank you for warnings. that I pray keep us from drifting or awaken us out of our slumber or make us realize that we have neglected this great salvation. So do your work now. Do your work in, in our lives that we would give great attention and love this great salvation. Oh, we thank you for it in Jesus' name.